how are we doing on quality? Are we taking the best care of patients we can for the money that we're receiving? Yes. Uh, you know, after all, we're spending sick people's money, so we need to be careful, and we need to we need to to use every uh, capability that we have to try and take better care of people. where we tell the stories of clinicians, healthcare leaders, and innovators who are improving the way clinicians work and deliver care. On today's episode, Evidence Care's co-founder and CMO, Brian Fengler, interviews Graphite Health's CMIO, Stan Huff. They talk about Stan's motivation to get into medical informatics, the early versions of EHR systems, data standards, and interoperability, and Stan's vision for an ideal health system structure. This episode was recorded in front of a live virtual audience. Enjoy the conversation with Stan Huff. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Fengler. I'm the co-founder and chief medical officer for Evidence Care. And with me today, I'm very honored to have Dr. Stan Huff, a pillar in the clinical informatics and interoperability community. Um, to start off with a, a quick bio on Stan, and uh, we could talk for 30 minutes just on your bio, Stan. Um, Don't but do Stan it. is a board-certified <laughs> clinical pathologist, uh, a professor of biomedical informatics at the University of Utah. He is a fellow of the American College of Medical Informatics, co-chair of the LOINC committee, co-chair of the HL7 Clinical Information Modeling Initiative, uh, Chair of Logica Health, Chair of the FIRE Foundation. Uh, many folks probably know you, Stan, as the uh, former CMIO at Intermountain Healthcare. Um, and of course, your latest role is as CMIO at Graphite Health, uh, which is something that's very interesting that I'll come back around to and definitely want to talk more about Graphite Health here later on in the podcast. Um, but I guess I'll start off and just say, uh, did I get that bio correct, Stan? Anything that I missed? You did really well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've had a very uh, distinguished career, and um, I'm so excited to be interviewing you here today. To start off with, you know, I, I kind of want to go all the way back. Um, I believe you grew up in Utah. Is that correct? Yes. Um, Small town so in Utah. What were some of the, of the influences growing up that kind of steered you towards a career in medicine? Early, I don't know, you know, in high school and other things, you know, when I sort of became aware of educational opportunities and uh, job opportunities and other things, uh, there were two things that, that really interested me. One was uh, computers. And this is... See, this this would be back in like 1970 or something. And computers, the, the, the first computer I had access, even saw was a programmable HP calculator, uh, sort of. But the other thing that I thought about was medicine. Uh, so I love computers. And, and computers, I, I don't have any explanation for it. It just seems to me that computers have power, uh, opportunity, you know, sort of the opportunity for perfect memory and perfect logic and other things that I just find powerful. And I probably just an inborn error to, to think about it that way. But then the other thing 
that I thought about was medicine. And medicine was appealing. It looked like reliable employment uh, for the most part. <laughs> but also, it offers the opportunity to interact with people and to help help people live better lives. I mean, it, it, it seemed like a, a worthwhile occupation besides, you know, being uh, good employment, if you will. So yeah, those are the things that I was thinking about. Now, another thing that, that sort of influenced me, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I went on a church mission to the Navajo Reservation, and I learned Navajo, learned to speak Navajo, uh, which is an incredibly uh, different language than all of the other languages that I've encountered. Uh, and it wasn't until I learned Navajo that I really kind of understood English and started to understand, you know, I mean, I, I obviously had all of the usual English classes and stuff and there were grammar and other things, but I saw entirely different ways for uh, the underlying uh, thoughts to be expressed. You know, there are adjectives and adverbs and, and all these other kind of things, and they're expressed in an entirely different way in Navajo. Uh, there were interesting things too, where there's there's no there are no gender specific pronouns in Navajo. They're just essentially just you and us and they and them and you know, and that's all there is. Uh, and there are also very interesting things uh, that never occurred to me. Uh, there's one verb for doing something alone, another verb for doing when two people are doing something together, another one when there are multiple people doing stuff, mm. and another one when they're like groups of people doing – and I mean, I just never conceived of and, – and that led me to, to think about how we express information and knowledge and mm -hmm. data. And in some, some sense, I think it led me down the path towards interoperability and thinking about the really deep underlying kind of concepts around interoperability. Yeah, the whole, you know, the whole time you're talking about that, I can't help but think about Loink or SNOMED or medical vocabularies yeah. that we use to express, you know, uh, clinical items. Yeah, there, there are incredible parallels there. And, you know, the, the sort of the deep issues are, are the same, you know, in terms of, yeah, and just a recognition that there are multiple ways things can be expressed, uh, both in in spoken language and written language but but also in formal models and other things there are always different ways that things can be expressed and they have different purposes uh etc the other thing that, that that occurs along those lines is that there are very few absolutes in in any of this in in the sense of there's only one right way to do it um mm -hmm. It is, and and in fact, it is that even the concepts we create are based on what we want to accomplish. So, I mean, there are essentially an infinite number of things that you could say about the universe, but we we pick certain things and certain actions and activities to give names to, and and then start talking about them. In a, you know, so anyway, it's I'm, I'm sort of head headed down a rabbit hole here, but uh, it's. Uh, you know, to me, it's just uh, a wonderfully complex, fractal sort of world. And, and, and I mean, it's just wonderful to work in that space, I guess, is, is the way I think about it. 
Yeah. Um, and as part of your medical training, you went on to be a clinical pathologist. Anything that sort of steered you in that path as a uh, as a specialty? You know, it, that was kind of practical and pragmatic, if you will. So when I was a, a senior in medical school, I, I started working with Homer Warner, who was one of the founding fathers of medical informatics. And and so I decided as a senior in medical school that I would uh, that I wanted to go into medical informatics. Now, it wasn't even called medical informatics back then. It was like, you know, computing or biomedical, medical computing or biomedical computing or biomedical physics or other things. But uh, I was already committed in the match. So I went to uh, uh, University of New Mexico and, and did a, a year of internal medicine that I was committed to. And I wasn't confident that I could make a living doing medical informatics. So I thought I better have a medical specialty that I can fall back to just so I avoid unemployment. And the most computerized specialty, and, and in many ways still is the most computerized specialty, was laboratory clinical, you know, mm -hmm. uh, clinical pathology, laboratory medicine, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got there. Uh, it, and it was, I mean, I enjoyed it anyway, because it, you know, instrumentation and numbers and, and, uh, and then all of the issues about how you measure things and uncertainty and measurement. Anyway, all excellent background anyway, but that's unemployment insurance in a sense that, <laughs> that I went into clinical pathology. So had a love for computers coming out of high school, knew you wanted to do something in clinical informatics. Um, you know, what were some of the first kinds of projects or things that you were working on? Was it during residency or was it after residency that you really started diving into the field? Well, I did projects during my residency. So I, you know, my, my clinical pathology residency was back with, um, uh, at the university of Utah. Where I, where I also got my MD degree. And one of the first projects I worked on actually was creating an interface between a blood bank system in the laboratory and, and the hospital information system, which was called HELP uh, at that institution. I, I was a, a medical resident and, and there was a, a student by the name of Ron Soddy and we worked together to create an interface for, to, to transfer blood bank information from mm -hmm. that one system to the other, and that and that was a fascinating project. The 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 straightforward information about uh, you know what blood units were available for this patient and that kind of stuff, but the more interesting information was blood typing, uh, especially related to transfusions, where you're looking for the antigens that a person has, and um, and especially those who have received a lot of transfusions when they start forming antibodies against uh, Duffy and Kell and all of the you know less common, you know, the, the other antigens besides ABO and RH, uh, mm -hmm. you know, anyway, it, that, 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 that kind of project. And then, um, there were other projects that were around, uh, developing terminology and managing terminology, and then got involved in, uh, decision support application development, um, uh, mm -hmm. primarily with Peter Haug and Al Pryor and, Reed Gardner and others who were who were there at Intermountain. Yeah. So um, at, at Intermountain, you guys had for a number of years a, a homegrown EHR that 
that many considered ahead of its time. Um, you know, what were some of the cool things that you guys had within that EHR that, you know, maybe some current EHRs are still not even doing? Yeah. The, the biggest thing that comes to mind is uh, the system was called HELP, and that stood for Health Evaluation Through Logical Processing. Okay. Uh, this was before before relational databases. Uh, basically, it was a time when you, you made your own databases, if you will. Uh, HELP had a unique database. But the, the thing about HELP, uh, sort of at a big picture level, was that the system was designed entirely to help clinicians take better care of patients. And, and I draw that distinction with what I think uh, motivated a lot of the other later EHRs, which were around patient administration, patient billing, sort of the financial and administrative aspects. The mm-hmm. help system from the very start was, was set up to collect data through devices so that it could automate data collection so it would save time for nurses and clinicians. It was about uh, creating interfaces so that lab data would, would be available at the bedside to clinicians. And then it, it was about decision support. So very early on, it was, for instance, once, once we had lab data, then the system was immediately set up to notify people about, uh, if you will, panic or urgent lab kind of activity. So it would notify you that this, you know, this patient had a low potassium and they were on digoxin and that, that could lead to fatal arrhythmias if you weren't careful, that kind of thing. And there are just any number of those things then that, uh, you know, ultimately I got involved in some of them later, uh, you know, rather than earlier. But that was the main thing. And that I didn't realize sort of how uh, how jaundiced and biased my <laughs> my experience was towards the value of clinical decision support and what it can mean to healthcare. And when I say decision support, I'm not talking just about diagnostic decision support about, mm-hmm. but it's about sort of everything that you can do to aid the care process. Uh, that, that could be just managing chronic anticoagulation in patients, or it, it could be making it easier for patients to make appointments or mm-hmm. all of that to me is decision support. It's helpful, you know, things where the computer is actually thinking in the background and and prompting and helping people to do the right thing. You know, I guess anything could be considered decision support, even just aggregating data and being able to display it at the right time to a clinician. But mm-hmm. I usually think of it as things that where the computer is doing things that either people can't do or or don't do well and that lead to better health care. And mm-hmm. that's that's sort of been a, a really common principle in in my career and my thinking for you know ever since and I I mean I realize even now that some people don't think don't see the value and, and don't believe in the value and that's okay but I don't think it's true <laughs> and I always hope to get an opportunity to talk to those people and help them understand you know the things that that we can do better if we have the have the computers aiding us in that work Mm-hmm. Now, you, you were at Intermountain for a number of years, and obviously Intermountain is very well respected as an organization that delivers high-quality care uh, to its patients. 
How do you think Intermountain realized that? Was was it your 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 health IT? Was it the mission of the organization? Was it the people? Like what what are the primary factors that you think went into making Intermountain Health a leading organization from an outcomes perspective? It was a combination of things. So there there were uh, visionary individuals there: Homer Warner, Reed Gardner, Al Pryor, Paul Clayton others who, who just had the vision of what, what could be accomplished. It's also, though, incredibly important because it aligns so well with Intermountain's mission and vision. And what I mean by that, Intermountain was uh, formed in 1975. And, and the way it was formed, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had 20 or so hospitals where they're providing health care. And then there was a conscious decision by the church to divest itself. It said, we're, you know, we want good health care to happen, but we don't want our, uh, our leaders to just be spending all of their time on the boards of healthcare organizations or financial organizations or anything else. We want them to be out with the people, you know, doing work. And so it, it was formed as a not-for-profit company with the, the, the mission of basically providing the highest quality healthcare at, at, at the, the lowest reasonable price. Uh, obviously, the organization had to be sustained. And so it, it, was, it, it was an interesting culture at the, at the level of the corporation because the corporation, and you know this, a, a lot of this, for instance, was uh, gleaned from conversations with Brent James, who's another mm-hmm. really important influence at Intermountain, but he said, it was fascinating. You go, to, you go to a normal, uh, and and it's still true today. Go to a normal hospital, you know, a, a normal board meeting for a corporate a healthcare corporation, or and they're talking about, you know, uh, how are we doing on revenue this year? What's our revenue goal? What's our, you know, uh, are we going to have capital to build a new building? Whatever. Intermountains board meetings were, how are we doing on quality? Are we taking the best care of patients we can for the money that we're receiving? Yes. Uh, the whole idea that, you know, after all, we're spending sick people's money. So we need to be careful and we need to we need to to use every uh, capability that we have to try and take better care of people. And that that mindset, you know, evolved into the mission statement of Intermountain, which is helping people to live the healthiest lives possible. Mm-hmm. So that becomes inclusive of preventive health as well as, you know, acute care and ambulatory and everything. It's everything you can do, exercise programs, whatever, everything you can do to help people live the healthiest lives possible. And so that corporate culture just fit perfectly with sort of the forward looking, innovative thoughts, you know, of, of the informatics leaders uh, at that time. I love that. Focus on the quality and have that be the primary, um, you know, topic of discussion and uh, in the, in the corporate board meetings. That's amazing. I want to shift gears a little bit and, and get maybe into the weeds uh, on some of this interoperability uh, discussion. Um, and obviously, you serve on a number of committees, um, but I saw. I think there's a lot of confusion out there. You know, people hear fire and loink and snowmed, and they don't really understand how to think about those as separate entities and how they work together. And I actually saw 
an article that you had written previously where you did a really good job of sort of uh, talking through, you know, what is fire versus Loink and SNOMED, um, you know, for those that are interested in this topic. Some of these ideas go back, uh, I think, when I first started thinking deeply about them were influences by Clem McDonald uh, when he when he formed the Loink Committee. And, you know, the first first meeting of, of the Loink guys uh, wasn't called Loink. I, I can't even, you know, we just got together. Uh, Clem came up with the with the name for Loink uh, because it's like Clem kind of provocative and and fun and innovative. But what it was about, you know, what Loink was about was that we had HL7 version 2, which was not in broad use yet, but it, it was a standard and people were using it. It was, was in use. And that is all about structure. And I mean structure in the sense of like programming, uh, programming language structures, you know, where you have a data structure, if you will. And so HL7 version 2 is providing the structure, but people that we're now creating HL7 interfaces said, what codes and terms do we use in those standards in order to actually communicate information? I mean, uh, so we've got a result record, but everybody basically would making up, you know, they had everybody who would install a lab system would make up their own names for all of the lab tests for hematocrits and hemoglobins mm -hmm, and glucoses mm -hmm. and potassiums and sodiums. And some would spell out the word and some would just have an abbreviation and, you know, some would use a number, et cetera. And so Loink was created out of a desire to have people, you know, use a standard code in their system. And then that could be transmitted. And then you, you didn't have to do all of these one-to-one, one many-to-many mappings between systems. But what, you know, sort of getting back to, to the point that you asked about, what occurred to us at that time is that the terminology had to work synergistically with the structure and and knowing the structure helps you to know how much information to put in a code or whether you wanted to use multiple codes or the you know other aspects of the structure to represent that information so for instance very early on we said well we're not going to put uh we're not going to make loint codes that say uh stat glucose or stat hematocrit or stat something else because we know in the HL7 structure, there's a, there's a field for the priority. So that stat, mm -hmm. and we know that that's going to be transmitted in the message. And so we're never going to include that information. Likewise, you, you could have made loint codes that said Dr. John's pain clinic elixir level or something. I mean, you know, yeah. again, we know who ordered it. We know who it's going to. That's information that's elsewhere in the message. And so, we again, there's an early rule that says we never put you know, a clinician's name in there. And then the other thing that is less clear and comes back to many ways to say things is that just thinking about something like glucose levels, uh, a glucose level in one sense is always a glucose. I mean, you put the, you put the sample on the machine and it, it figures out that the glucose is, you know, 120 or 130 or 180 or whatever the glucose level is. But then when you look at actual patients, you know, uh, lab systems, they have lab tests that are named random glucose and fasting glucose and uh, pre-op glucose and post-op glucose. I mean, they have all of these different glucoses 
and then you have, you know, glucoses by finger stick and glucoses, you know, mm -hmm. and so you realize that, yeah, there's a, there's a glucose level and then there's, then there are all of these specific things that are actually really important for the interpretation of the data that say whether it was random or fasting or uh, finger stick or done by glucometer or whether it was done by the best interest in, instrument in the laboratory. And those can literally be done both, you know, two, two ways. That is, you can have in the HL7 message, you can have uh, a single code that everybody uses for glucose level. And then you can have additional information in the message that gives you the context. So the additional information would be in a different field mm -hmm. that says whether this was random or fasting, a different place where you could say what kind of instrument it was done with, you know, uh, any kind of precondition, whether it was, I mean, you might even be doing, uh, you know, exercise glucoses or something, you know. And so uh, that representation and Loink made a, a very explicit uh, decision to support kind of both styles. So Loink has the ability to say fasting glucose is a single code or just glucose with another another concept in the message that says this is a random, you know, the, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. whether it's random or fasting, etc. There's that interesting interplay. And I think the, the, the term that I've heard people talking about it now, uh, actually some fun discussions going on uh, and a new collaboration going on between Loink and SNOMED. And one of the discussions is how do we more actively make sort of a unification of that information model structure part and, and the way that we use the codes. And uh, I'm going on too long in this vein, but that the thing, for instance, in SNOMED is that SNOMED distinguishes between the name of the procedure versus the name of the result that comes from that procedure. Mm -hmm. So SNOMED has, you know, has codes that say hematocrit. And, and the real meaning of that is it, it is, you know, it, it would be used like if you wanted to say, what are the, what are the steps that you do to, to get a hematocrit? You draw a sample, you spin it down, you measure the volume, you know, the volume of the clear versus the, you know, those procedural activities. And then there's a different code quote unquote, an observable in, in SNOMED that has to say, this is the name of the number that was achieved by the result as a result of that process. I did all of those process steps and I ended up with a number of uh, 49% for the hematocrit. And the point is that if you follow, if, if your terminology is agnostic to any information model, then you'll end up with a whole, you know, and, and, and as you might guess, see, that means that there are essentially things that look to uh, an unbiased observer would say, well, geez, this whole hierarchy over here in the procedures looks almost identical to this hierarchy over in the observables. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea is coming out in that discussion that, hey, if we can say we're anticipating this code could be used in an order record or in a result record, when a hematocrit as a code shows up in an order record, we know you're asking us to do that test. On the other hand, when it shows up in a result record, we know that's the name of this 49% that uh, is is the thing that I'm going to use clinically to make decisions. So mm -hmm. I've gone on way too long, Brian, about that no, interaction I... between the, the two parts. But yeah. yeah, no, we could talk about for hours on the, uh, in the weeds of uh, all that. One of the questions that did come in uh, through LinkedIn 
uh, earlier this week was, um, and you're obviously very involved with the, the fire standard, but the question was, why is it taking EHR vendors so long to adopt fire? I, I think there are many reasons. And I would say probably the most important are sort of business, cultural, social issues. I don't mean to to denigrate anybody in, in, in what they're doing, but another one of the sort of truths of things about standards, you could ask, well, in, in some logical sense, standards make so much so much sense in terms of what they can save and do and, and, and enhance society. The practical truth, though, is if you're only dealing with sort of one organization, it's easier to just make up your own codes. It's way easier. Mm -hmm. If you use standards, you have to figure out what the standards mean. You have to figure out what you used to call this thing. Now you're going to call this other thing, essentially making mapping between your local representations and your standard representations. But as soon as as soon as you start talking to like more than one other organization, if you're having to send lab data to your EHR and also to public health and you have to, sh you know, share it with the insurance company and, you know, whatever, you, you quickly realize now standards have a real practical value. But too, too often implementing systems is driven by how fast you can get it done and, and their payments depending on when you get this thing done. So people, you know, just the, the, the common tradition forever has been people just make up their own codes and they, they may start with a starter set, but then they quickly modify that and change it. And so it, it's been tradition. But the, the other thing is that, and this comes up in other, other things, that the, the best action is not financially incentivized. The best behavior is not financially incentivized. So companies that have large market share, why do they want to be more interoperable with other companies? Why, mm -hmm. why do they want to support FIRE? There have been arguments that just knowing the way, uh, you know, if you will, the attributes of information and the, or data and the way that they're shared is intellectual property, and they wanted to protect that intellectual property. Um, mm. Now, I don't think that's in the best interest of society or of patient care, but, you know, those are some of the things. That, I mean, if you're in a dominant market position, uh, you don't have a financial incentive to, to support FIRE or ONC standards or other things. And so, you know, that's why I'm so grateful, if you will, for, for the regulations that move towards much more open access and use of the data and, and especially both the FIRE standard and the terminology standards, LOINC, SNOMED, RxNorm, UCOM for units of measure, all of those things. Uh, love, love that those things have been mandated and they're a tremendous step forward. Another aspect to that, many of the systems have literally were architected 30 years ago mm -hmm. or more. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that they stood up for 30 years means that they did a pretty good job of that. At, at the same time, I think, you know, looking at systems that are organizing the information into 4,000 to 6,000 tables, it's not intuitive how that how you get that to be fire resources, you know, for observables and for patients and other things, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and so it's real work, too. It's not that people are just not motivated. It's yeah. also that it's real work, uh, but it's worth it. I, I mm -hmm. just hasten to add it's really worth it. But I think that's some of the issues that I see in how long it takes. But people shouldn't be surprised either. 
because again, the first versions of ACL7 that were really implemented were created in 1992-93 in that in that time actually earlier than that but that's when people started actually using them and i would guess that it took almost 15 years before you started seeing like 90% of healthcare organizations using that so i mean traditionally it's it's taken that long it just change management is just incredibly hard yeah um well i do want to um talk a little bit about graphite health but before i do that um question that's come in from the audience is um you know what would be sort of your ideal vision for interoperability what do you see uh, the possibilities of that um leading to here i'm gonna wax philosophical and and stuff i mean it's it's amazing you know, my personal motivation in this area really comes from the fact that we're not providing good care for patients. I mean, really good studies have shown that somewhere between 200,000 and 400,000 people a year die of preventable medical errors. And you can look at the research uh, article that came out a few years back out of Johns Hopkins University published in the British Medical Journal documented that and and other similar studies that have been done. So, and verified by my own experience, I might say, in, in, mm-hmm. in my own case, as well as family members and others, there are just a whole bunch of preventable medical errors. I, I mean, you put that into perspective, that means today, over 600 people are going to die today, today wow. of preventable medical errors. You know, that that would be like two airliners crashing and killing everyone on board every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somehow that hasn't caught people's attention. Uh, We've just become accustomed to it. And there's also a lot of, well, it's those other bad doctors that are doing that. But when you get into it, you find that no, sort of that happens to everybody because they're tired or they get mixed up or uh, they were on call all night and didn't get any sleep or, or it's just things that you could never remember anyway, where a computer would, you have to have a computer because none of us could remember all of the potential drug drug interactions or other things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the motivation. But the the idea is that if we had true interoperability, plug and play interoperability, then what would happen is people would start creating those kind of very useful applications that help take better care of patients that look for occult sepsis in the emergency room or that help diagnose and manage deep venous thrombosis or applications that manage chronic anticoagulation or applications that suggest the very best antibiotic to use, you know, when you have a a suspected infection and a suspected site of infection in a person 53 years old, blah, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and those things would grow up. And the thing that would be very different is that if we had true interoperability, you could make that application once and then everybody could use it. I mean, not for free. I, I'm assuming people would would still, uh, they would make that, create that kind of knowledge, and they they would be able to then use it everywhere. And the, one of the remarkable changes would be, it would be available in 200-bed community hospitals. It would be available in every physician's office and uh, every nurse practitioner's office, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And today, that's not true. I mean, it, you can get there, but I mean, talked with companies and that that are doing this kind of activity and you guys you you could even comment on this part but they develop the knowledge and then 
this wasn't your company, but another company that said, hey, we have these things that we've proven to be useful and valuable. And when we take them now to the next hospital, we stand typically six months. They have 10 applications that they're doing. So it's not just a single application, but we send six months wrangling the data to be able to support that process. Mm -hmm. And that's not a scalable process. It means that that's going to be limited to people who can afford it and who have the time and resources and the informaticists and other people who can do that. And we need to get out of that. We need, we need to get into a truly interoperable uh, situation. Well, if we do that and, and things are now shareable uh, with, without, you know, without modification, then it changes dramatically other things. For instance, you think about the impact on uh, medical schools. The body of knowledge now is residing in executable programs. I mean, when I say executable knowledge, I mean, it's a program that I don't have to think about. It's running on every patient who's seen in the emergency room and it says, oh, based on the fact that this patient has had some nausea and vomiting, a little fever, they're a little bit hypotensive, you need to be thinking about whether this patient has sepsis or not. Mm -hmm. You need to order a white count, you need to order a lactic acid, you need, you know, and it's going to interact directly in that. And so that becomes now shareable everywhere. And what can happen then is that organizations and people would would get together and you'd have a, a group of people who are working on how we best treat diabetes, how we best treat heart failure, how we best treat asthma, how we best treat Hashimoto's thyroiditis, how, you know, mm -hmm. etc. It becomes like weather forecasting. Over our lifetimes, we've seen progressive incremental improvement in weather forecasting. And, and, and one of it is, you know, greater and greater accessibility to data. But the other thing is with that data, we create new knowledge and then we can create ever better prognostic applications about that. Mm -hmm. And so every disease would become like weather forecasting. It would just get better and better. And the knowledge we have is expressed as knowledge in executable programs. And we make, you know, it, it would change too so that you know, the way that we compensate or recognize clinicians for research by peer-reviewed applications, it would change so that people get recognition for creating new and better knowledge representation and, and execution. The actual creation of that executable module becomes an academic credential, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a lot more to think about there, but I think we're at, at a critical time that fundamentally we can change the history, you know, about the way people practice medicine. And I'm quoting really sort of my heroes like Larry Weed, whose, whose book about medicine in denial describes, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a lot of the impact that we need to have, have to have, that we really owe society if we're going to take serious our commitment to, to improve the health of people in the world. That's great. Well, let's uh, let's dive into Graphite Health. So, you know, I've, I, I know about the company, but would would love to have you tell the audience sort of how was Graphite Health formed? What's the vision for Graphite Health? Uh, why don't we start there? So, uh, Graphite Health was formed by two or three founding uh, individuals, Reese Robinson, who who worked at Presbyterian Hospital in Albuquerque, Dan Lillenquist at uh, Intermountain Healthcare, and Matt Abrams, who 
is a venture capitalist guy, actually. But the, I, the idea between graphite is that it would be about creating the kind of interoperability that we're talking about, that we would have a standards-based representation, uh, if you will, a, a single preferred way to represent a particular kind of data. We would adhere to all of the standards, to FHIR, uh, to LOINC, SNOMED, all of that sort of stuff. And we would create an environment where people could create applications and access data through a, a truly semantically interoperable FHIR API that would help realize the part of the vision that we've been talking about, that people could create applications, they could be certified as graphite compliant, if you will, and that would make a marketplace for those applications. And then complementary to that, graphite produces a platform that those applications can use because we found at least so far, kind of going back to some of our early conversation, the fire services as they're provided today aren't really adequate to do what people want to do. And so Graphite would produce a standardization process uh, based on standard information models and standard terminologies. We would standardize you know, data from wherever we could get it, whether that was a lab system or a pharmacy system or an EHR system. And uh, those applications then would be able to uh, access and use that data in a truly interoperable fashion. And so that's sort of the, the seminal idea be, behind that. But it, it goes beyond that. Once you have that standardized data, for instance, you can imagine, boy, that would make public health reporting so much easier. It would make it so much easier to participate in clinical trials. It would make it so much easier for people to aggregate data for analytics and population health. It, it makes it easier if I'm being seen at two different healthcare organizations because they can both see all of my data mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and not have to translate it or do anything. I just access from two different endpoints and I can see the trend of glucoses that you had at Intermountain and glucoses that you had at the University of Utah, et cetera. So that's the quick story on graphite. Obviously, there's a lot more that we could say about it, but the current member systems are Intermountain, uh, Presbyterian Health, Kaiser Permanente and SSM Health, uh, SSM mm -hmm. uh, centered in St. Louis. Um, and so all of those health systems have agreed that they're going to integrate into Graphite Health and that then Graphite certified applications could operate in a sort of plug and play fashion uh, in those environments. Exactly. That's the vision. That's yes. exactly. very, very interesting. I mean, I would throw in a couple of things. Graphite itself would not make the applications because we see that as mm -hmm. uh, as competing with the people that we're trying to enable in that ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that, and this could change over time, but the, the current best thinking is that, you know, we would make the uh, Graphite platform inside of the system's control, inside their firewall, if you will, or with inside their security, so that they have total control over uh, the data, they can share it with who they want to share it with, not share it if they don't want to share it with anyone, but still have the advantage of having truly interoperable data and applications. And just with a little bit more that I know about it, which additional points that may be interesting to the audience, I believe it's set up as almost like a public utility and that it's nonprofit. And Yeah, it's nonprofit, probably more detail than people want to know, but it, it really, what, what's happening is that it's, it's financed right now on, through debt financing. In other words, the governing member organizations are making loans to Graphite that Graphite will need to pay back as, as we get 
further developed and have a revenue stream based on sales of applications in the marketplace. But nonprofit, exactly as you described, uh, you know, a community benefit type of organization. And our model there is uh, with Civica, which is uh, a company that is working in the area of providing economically feasible generic drugs yeah. uh, for folks. So, uh, well, Stan, we have another question from the audience here, which is, what is the single most important or exciting thing that you would like to accomplish with Graphite Health in the next three years? You know, just, just to establish feasibility. We need to actually create the, pla- the platform, standardize the data, uh, work with some companies to create applications that we can put up in, into the marketplace see those things actually work in the plug and play way that we said that we don't have to do special mappings at every organization or do special changes to the application as those are implemented i mean that that to me is is the the most exciting thing is to to see this actually working probably will forever be naysayers but i think we can overcome a lot of naysayers if we can see practical use and people will you know, and we'll get past past the issue as of whether this is really possible. Some people would argue it's not even really possible. It's so hard that we can't do it. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation. But I think that's the most important thing is to prove that we can do it and start recognizing the value of that in improving patient care. That's great. Um, well, probably a great place to end there, Stan. Really appreciate you joining us and uh, couldn't be more thankful for you know all the work that you've done over over decades to really lay the foundation uh, within this field that that many companies are now you know able to uh, evolve from there. You know, really appreciate the conversation today, and and thank you for joining us. Well, it's just been a pleasure, uh, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. I, I love an opportunity to talk to people, uh, and it's been great. And I, I I'm just grateful for all of the people that I've had a chance to work with that have been just exceptional mentors and friends to me, Ed Hammond, Clem McDonald, as I already mentioned, the people at Intermountain, many other people, including Mickey Tripathi and others that are you know, uh, working in National. They've just been great friends and great mentors for me. You know, John Halumka, I, I mean, just, I, I, I'm gonna forget a lot of people, but uh, <laughs> I'm so grateful for the people that I've known and had an opportunity to work with in this area. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Absolutely. Great seeing you today, Stan. And thank you for everybody who joined us live. Uh, Of course, we'll be posting this on all the various platforms for podcasts uh, so folks can uh, listen to us there as well. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.